0: Tonight, we continue with our study of the Baptist Faith and Message, moving to Article 2. We began uh, noting that the Baptist Faith and Message 2000 has a preface or a prologue, if you like. And then the first article begins, as I think properly it should begin, with the doctrine of Scripture. In other words, how can we know anything about the character and the ways of God apart from God revealing it to us in His Word? And so the first article in the Baptist Faith and Message rightly began with scripture but tonight we move to the second article which deals with the doctrine of god and you'll note uh, unlike all the other articles that there is no scripture attached to this one because uh, in the succeeding weeks we will see that there is a particular uh, sub-article given to the doctrine of god the father there is secondly a sub-article given to the doctrine of god the son and thirdly there is a sub-article given to uh, God, the Holy Spirit. And yet there is an initial statement about the doctrine of God as well. But I would dare not jump into this without putting out there for you some scriptures that I think would pertain to the overall doctrine of God. And so at the top of your notes that you have, and uh, is there anyone that doesn't have the notes tonight? They're back in the back. In fact, maybe one of you could go back there. If you just put your hand up. Uh, these wonderful gentlemen will pass them out, and so you can have a copy uh, of what we're working through this evening. But uh, as you get them uh, at the top of page one uh, and even now in your Bible, you could turn with me to Exodus chapter thirty four verses six through eight Exodus chapter thirty four verses six through eight, where you have in the book of the Exodus a wonderful affirmation concerning the one true and living God and concerning the type of God. That he is, and so let me read that text for you. Exodus 34 6, and the Lord passed before him, that is Moses, and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, now listen, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. By no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. So Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth, and he worshiped. But again, verse 6, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful, gracious, long-suffering abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Turn to the right, just a few books, to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6 and verse 4. Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4. Those of you that have studied this book know that this is what is called the Shema, uh, the Hebrew word which means to hear or to hearken, which is the first word of verse 4. Uh, this is the confession of faith. Of the Hebrew people. In fact, some have said uh, it is almost equivalent to the John three sixteen of the Old Testament, and it simply says, "Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, it is could be translated in Hebrew, Yahweh our Elohim, the Lord our God, the Lord is one." And so, you have a very strong affirmation of the oneness. ...of God, the fact that God is not plural, but God is one. And we have seen previously how the book of Exodus described him in terms of his character. And then a third reference, moving to the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, uh, and we'll just simply note verses 4, 5, and 6 for a different insight. Here Paul says in Ephesians 4, there is one body and one spirit... Just as you were called uh, in one hope of your calling, verse 5, one Lord, think of the Lord Jesus, one faith, one baptism. Verse 6, one God and Father of all who is both above all and through all and in you all. And I could have noted other passages like uh, Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, where you have, in addition to the affirmation of God's oneness, the fact that there is within this one God a plurality of persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, as is clearly affirmed here in the book of Ephesians. Now, what does then the opening article read in the Baptist Faith and Message when it comes to the doctrine of God? And you have it there on page 1. There is one and only one living and true God. All the words matter there. One. Only one. He is living and he is true. He is the one God. Uh, he is an intelligent, spiritual, and personal being. He is the creator, redeemer, preserver, and ruler of the universe. God is infinite in his holiness and all other Perfections, and then the article is going to expound on some of those perfections. God is all powerful; He's omnipotent. Uh, he is all knowing; He's omniscient. And, and this was a new addition to the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. His perfect knowledge extends to all things, past, present, and future, including the future decisions of His free. Creatures. In fact, we will sometimes in theology speak of the fact that God has exhaustive knowledge. He knows all things actual and potential. He knows what would have been if different things had proceeded in a different way. So he knows both. Sometimes we will say it this way. He knows factuals and counterfactuals. In other words, there's no realm, there's no type of knowledge that our God is not fully and completely aware of. And I'll point out for you in a moment why that particular statement was added to the Baptist faith and message 2000. Then it continues, to him then, we owe the highest love, reverence, and obedience. The eternal triune God, note the word that precedes triune, the eternal, he's always been a triune being. The eternal triune God reveals himself to us as father, son, son, And Holy Spirit with distinct personal attributes, but without division of nature, essence or being. In other words, does the Father, Son and Spirit have the same nature, the same essence, the same being? Yes, there's no division there. And yet they do have personal distinctiveness in the sense that the Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father, yet all together constitute the one true and living God revealed to us as a eternally triune being. Now, as I mentioned a moment ago, what are the key texts that deal with the preface or the opening statement on the doctrine of God? Well, interestingly, there's none. A key texts are only placed after the three subheadings on God the Father, letter A, we'll look at it next week, uh, God the Son, letter B, and God the Holy Spirit, letter C. And interestingly, in my research, I discovered that the 1925 Baptist Faith and Message contained only an article on God, and they did not break it down into the three subheadings of a, a subheading on the Father, a subheading on the Son, and a subheading on the Holy Spirit. Now, What are some major theological observations? And by way of brief commentary, can we understand what the article is affirming and what is it also denying? Well, when we think about God, two important questions naturally arise. First, does God exist? Second, what is God like? And those are the two big ones. Does he exist? And if he, she, they, or it do exist, then what is he or she or they like? And then secondly, or do they exist? And then secondly, what are they like? What is his character? What is the the nature of this God? And so I provide for you a chart uh, back over on page five. You can turn there for just a moment where I show you something about the answer to these particular questions in a chart form. First of all, the question, does God exist? Well, uh, if you are a student of philosophy, you know that throughout history, the history of philosophy, especially in the Western tradition, and by that we mean in Europe and America, uh, there has been developed what are called the classical arguments for God's existence. And I've listed them there for you. Uh, the teleological argument uh, and the cosmological argument basically have their, their source or their origin uh, in the great philosopher Aristotle. Later, they are refined in some ways by the uh, Roman Catholic Thomas Aquinas. But the teleological argument is an argument from design. Uh, the classic example is a watch implies or demands a watchmaker. In other words, we know that this watch did not simply come into being, but there was a creative mind behind it, a, divine, uh, a designer that brought this into being questioned, uh, which is more intricate in its development, which is more intricate in its workings. My watch are this grand universe. My watch are a single cell in your body. And, of course, the answer is even a single cell in your body is far more intricate, far more filled with information than even my watch. And, therefore, this design requires a designer, and this great design that we have requires a great designer who would be God. Uh, The moral argument is the argument from law. We've never met any humanity, uh, any human person that did not have some awareness of right and wrong. It may be perverted, it may be flawed, but all humans have an awareness of law. Well, where does the idea of law come from? Is it one, an action of evolution, or two, is there a divine law giver who has placed the law and written the law on our hearts. And I have said this many times before. This was the argument that turned the atheist, C.S. Lewis, into a theist, and then opened the door for him to eventually embrace Christ as his personal Lord and Savior. He found this particular argument uh, overwhelming and compelling in terms of its uh, validity for God's existence. The cosmological argument is an argument from cause and effect. We have this great effect. Creation, there must then be a sufficient cause for this creation. As awesome as creation is, there must be an awesome creator behind it. In some ways, uh, this argument is similar to the teleological argument. The ontological argument is a far more intricate kind of argument, it's far more sophisticated. Uh, the medieval scholar Anselm gave it to us and basically it argues that the idea of a greatest being requires that that greatest being exists. If he did not exist, then he would not be the greatest being. You say, mm, that sounds kind of like a sleight of hand. Some people think that the argument is a sleight of hand and has no validity. Uh, others think it is the strongest of all the arguments. You say, well, what do you think is the strongest of the arguments for God's existence? The final one, the biblical argument, that is the argument from special revelation and the Christ event. I have said again on many occasions that if you could prove to me tomorrow beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus did not rise from the dead, I'd become an agnostic not an atheist, I think that's intellectually suicidal, but if I became convinced that Jesus did not rise from the dead, then I have to be honest with you tonight, I don't know whether there's a God or not. And if there is one, I have really no idea what that divine being is like. I have no awareness, no understanding, because if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then special revelation is revealed in the Bible is dead. It's DOA. And therefore, I don't have a sure word, and therefore I have no, for me, valid Um, tangible sufficient knowledge to try to construct any idea uh, as to what god is like but uh, as a atheist friend of mine as well said uh, his name is mike bryant uh, if jesus rose from the dead then there is a god he is that god the bible is true heaven and hell are real and he makes all the difference And because he did rise from the dead, and because he affirmed that the Bible is true, then we have a reliable source for knowing both the existence of God and the nature and character of God as well. Which then moves us to that second question, what is God like? Well, I break it down for you in three big categories that I will not pursue at any length. We understand from the Bible that he is a triune being. Uh, He has one essence. One nature, one being, but he reveals himself in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And again, whatever it is that makes God, God, the Father is all of that, the Son is all of that, And the Holy Spirit is all of that as well. And I give you some biblical references that affirm the full deity of each member of the triune God. Then secondly, what is God like? Well, now we're talking about his attributes, his perfections. And theologians have often used these two categories to talk about God. We talk about his incommunicable attributes. That is, things that are true of God alone that we do not share in. And then his Communicable attributes—that is, things we do share with God because we are made in His image. So, what is God like in terms of His incommunicable attributes? <clears throat> well, He is sovereign. He is infinite. Asaety, which speaks of His oneness. He is immutable. He does not change. He is eternal. Uh, he is immaterial. He is a spiritual being, and then He is omnipotent. Uh, he is omnipresent. And he is omniscient, that is, he is all-powerful, he is everywhere present, he's all-knowing. Furthermore, more in terms of his moral character, he's holy, he is just, he is truth, he is mercy, he is grace, and he is love. And the fact of the matter is, each one of us can share in those attributes as well, though we would never share them in perfection to the degree that our God does. And then finally, we also learn something about God from his names that we have both in the Old and the New Testament. And I've listed some of the more prominent ones for you there on page five. And I will let you look at those particular names on your own. And so these, uh, this particular chart helps flesh out a little bit about the two questions, one Does God exist? Secondly, what is God like? Now, go back to page one and look at the next paragraph. Americans have been pretty consistent for some time when answering the first question. Atheism continues to bark loudly, but still it has not garnered all that many followers. The fact of the matter is, even in the most recent uh, surveys, 90 to 95% of all Americans believe that God exists. They believe in a supreme being of some type. Now, that does not mean that they believe in the God of the Bible, but it does mean they're not atheists. It does mean that they believe in some type of supreme ultimate being. Now, it is interesting, and the next census that's going to take place will be very fascinating. Uh, we now know that in terms of religious demography, in terms of religious demographics, The uh, fastest growing religious category in America today are nuns, and I don't mean N-U-N-S, not those kind of nuns, nuns, N-O-N-E-S. In other words, are Americans becoming less spiritual? No. But are we becoming less religiously oriented in terms of an institution? Yes. Yes. In fact, in a recent survey that I saw, it is now estimated that somewhere between 15 and 20% of Americans, and it has grown exponentially in the last two to three decades, somewhere between 15 to 20, I think the number in my head is 17%, but somewhere in that range, they would classify themselves on a survey as none. Uh, I'm not a I'm not a Catholic, I'm not a Protestant, I'm not a Muslim, I'm not a Buddhist, I'm not a Jew, I'm not a Hindu. I I'm none. Now, so you're an a- not 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 that I'm an atheist. I I'm I'm a spiritual person. Uh, I do believe in some type of divine reality beyond myself, but in terms of a commitment to a particular religious body or denomination, uh that is a growing <clears throat> growing category. Uh, in America, but still, uh, the fact is atheism, even with the advent of the new atheists, uh, still are in the gross minority, best estimate 10%, most would still say that only about 5% of those in America are authentically and genuinely committed to atheism, I personally think you'll see that number grow in the days ahead. Uh, It is certainly the case that in Europe, in certain countries there, uh, avowed, convictional atheists uh, range sometimes as high as 40 percent in some of the populations of what used to be uh, very solid hotbeds for Christianity and were the uh, places where the Reformation was launched tragically today, uh, nuns. And even atheists dominate the religious landscape in Europe. And unless something happens remarkable in America, we may move slowly. But I think we likewise will track in that same direction. But, next paragraph. Uh, However, when we examine the second question, that is, what is God like? Uh, Things become more complicated and confusing. You ought to underline the next word. Pluralism is the end thing in contemporary culture. And therefore, the doctrine of God has not escaped its influence. In fact, today, choices in terms of how you understand the deity includes pantheism, finite theism, deism, polytheism, for example, Hinduism, Mormonism, varieties of New Ageism, and classic monotheism, just to name a few. In fact, for just a moment, turn to the very final page of your notes, and I've given you a simple chart. That lays out for you what are, for the best of my way of reckoning, the seven major views of God that you can find in the cafeteria world of uh, American religiosity today. Again, uh, atheism is uh, the first one. This is a world without God. Secondly, there is theism, a world plus an infinite God. And Again, just to explain that, Judaism is a theistic religion. Um. Islam is a theistic religion, and Christianity is a theistic religion. In fact, if you are wanting to be a little bit more precise, you could write under the word theism, monotheism. M-O-N-O, theism, because mono means one. And if you know Islam well, you know it affirms there's one God. And you know that Judaism affirms there's one God. And that Christianity affirms that there's one God. But let me be clear. The God of Christianity is not the God of Islam. And the God of Christianity is not the God of Judaism because Christianity affirms uniquely, in terms of all world religions, a triune understanding of the one true and living God. And so sometimes people say, well, Jews and Muslims and Christians worship the same one God. No, we don't. That is not an accurate statement by any measurement pantheism a world that is God all that is is the world and God is equal to the whole world deism which is actually the foundation for which America was founded a world on its own made by God you pick up a dollar bill you look on that dollar bill and it will make the statement in God we trust great question which God are you talking about it's never defined it's never made clear Again, to be fair to history, most of the founding fathers were deists. They did believe in a supreme being. They believed that supreme being had made this world, but for the most part, he is now disconnected from the world, and the world is out there running on its own. To make it very personal, uh, does it do any good to pray? No, because God's not there, and God doesn't care. That's the easy way of defining deism. God is not there, and God doesn't care because he is something like an absent landlord who has wound up the world. It's now running on its own, and he has no personal involvement with this world whatsoever. Finite theism is a world with a finite God. This is a God that sometimes loses. This is a God that sometimes does not see his purposes accomplished. This is a God who is not omnipotent, but he is impotent. Uh, he may be stronger than you and me, but he is not a God who is all-powerful. He is not a God who is sovereign. He is not a God who is in control. He is finite. He is limited. Panentheism is a world in God. This is the one that is most... uh, uh in touch with New Age ideology, the idea that there's kind of a divine force that we can all tap into in some kind of a way. It's the kind of stuff that you'll hear often popularized uh, in slogans that come out of Hollywood uh, as folks talk about just getting in touch with their inner person, where there's a divine reality that we can all tap into. And then finally, polytheism, a world with many gods. And I noted back for you on page uh, one that we're here talking about uh, Hinduism, New ageism but also mormonism Uh, and again just to be fair but not trying to be unkind is mormonism christian no no mormonism believes in a plurality in fact it believes in an unending plurality of potential gods they basically argue as man now is god once was as god now is man may become And so Mormonism believes in a plurality of individual deities, and therefore it does not affirm monotheism, but rather it affirms polytheism, plain and simple. Go with me then to page two. The fact of the matter is then we have a veritable smorgasbord of options in America today. As one man has said, step up to the plate and choose your god. Your gods are your goddesses. Couple this then with the present infatuation with tolerance and what has been called by some very insightful religious students, the democratization of truth, and the God question becomes very problematic, if not insolvable. It is at this point then that Christianity must choose to swim against the currents of modernity, while recognizing that different religions may share some common beliefs and values. Basic and fundamental differences divide us when addressing some issues in the nature of God is one of those dividing, irreconcilable differences. So what are some some specific observations theologically that we can make from Article 2 of the Baptist Faith and Message 2000? I'm going to move through these very quickly. Number one. The Baptist Faith and Message affirms in its article that there is one and only one living and true God. Thus, this cancels out and opposes both atheism and polytheism. Secondly, this God is intelligent, spiritual, and personal. He is the creator, the redeemer, the preserver, and the ruler. Therefore, this rules out pantheism, panentheism, and deism. Three, our God is infinite in holiness and all other perfections. And God is all-powerful and all-knowing. Which means what? God has no beginning or end. He lacks nothing. He is perfect and pure with no taint of sin or evil. He is omnipotent, all-powerful. He is omniscient. He is all-knowing. Indeed, His perfect knowledge extends to all things past, present, and future, including the future decisions of his free creatures. This then sets aside not only finite theism, but also open theism. You say, what do you mean by open theism? Well, there's a movement among evangelicals that argues that God can only know what is knowable and that the future, for example, is not knowable because it hasn't happened yet. Furthermore, God so values human freedom that God has willingly limited himself to his knowledge concerning the future free will actions of his creatures. Because if God knew in advance what you and I were going to do, then we're actually not free. What we are going to do is already settled and set, at least in the mind of God, and therefore it's determined and because they are opposed to what I think is a misunderstanding of determinism and are committed to radical uh, human freedom, then they in essence say God has willingly chosen not to know in advance the free will actions of his creatures. So, for example, God didn't know an hour ago whether you'd be here or not. And God doesn't know what any of us will be doing an hour from that. God doesn't know what any of us will be doing five seconds from now. Because God does not know in advance the free will acts of his creatures. And the Baptist faith and message, I think, rightly added a statement to deny what, in my judgment, is virtually a heresy. And certainly a denial of what the Bible has to say about the exhaustive, complete, full, and total knowledge of our God. And so this particular statement, his perfect knowledge... Extends to all things past, present, and future, including the future decisions of his free creatures sets aside this false teaching of open theism. Number four. The Bible reveals a God who rightly deserves our love and uh, our obedience. Indeed, to give such devotion to any other person or any other thing is to commit idolatry and to violate the first commandment. Page three. Number five. Our God then is also utterly unique from the theological conceptions of all of the religions. For the Bible reveals him to be a trinity of three eternal persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and yet he is still one, a unity. Now, guys, we need to understand, this is a major stumbling block in terms of witnessing an evangelism to Muslims. Major stumbling block because they hear this and they think immediately, one, polytheism, you worship many gods. And secondly, because I think they've been falsely brainwashed, they will also immediately jump to the idea that you believe that God the Father had actual sexual intercourse with Mary. And of course, they find that rightfully so as unthinkable and repulsive. But the fact is, when it comes to Muslim evangelism, one of the major roadblocks that we have to negotiate and overcome is the doctrine of the Trinity. The fact of the matter is the same thing in a different kind of a way is a major stumbling block with Jewish persons as well, especially Jewish persons who still embrace to some degree the teachings of their scriptures, what we call the Old Testament. But the biblical witness is clear. Whatever it is that constitutes God as God, the Father is all of this, the Son is all of this, and the Holy Spirit is all of this. But there's still only one God, distinct in person, but without division of nature, essence, or being. Number six, the Christian God is personal and more because he is a tri being in other world religions for example like buddhism god is less personal in fact in classic buddhism there is no god they're atheistic islam views god as utterly transcendent and basically unapproachable in islam you would never think of god as father in islam god is up there out there as the sovereign judge who rules and reigns and watches over us and keeps a very short stick of accounting in terms of your behavior. Move on. Mysticism. New age, its offspring, sees God as wholly imminent. In other words, God's not up there. God is down here and in here. So the the transcendent view is God is so up there you can't get to him. The imminent view is God is so much down here, he's hardly indistinguishable between you and me. You say, well, which is true? Well, they're both true in a right understanding. The Bible says that the one true God is both. He's both transcendent and imminent. You say, what do you mean? Next statement. He is above us. He is separate from us. And yet he is also a God who draws near and he can be known Truly and genuinely known in a personal relationship whereby he can come to live inside of you through the presence of the Holy Spirit. And you can know him in the intimacy of a relationship whereby you and I can call him our father. So it's not an either or. The biblical revelation is a both and. He is the sovereign God who came down in the person of His Son and makes Himself known to us personally and intimately through His Holy Spirit. Therefore, an important practical consideration. What is the relevance of our theology of God? Does our thinking about and answer to the God question really make any difference in the day-to-day experiences of life? Well, I think the answer is a resounding yes, and I give you one very classic and very, I think, uh, important uh, example. Ivan, uh, the character in Fyodor Dostoevsky's novel *The Brothers Karmazov, makes this very profound statement: "Quote, if God is dead, everything is permissible. If God is dead, everything is permissible." And I would add this statement. If we are all gods, then anything goes. For by definition, God or the gods make the rules. And so the end, interestingly, is the same. If there is no God, then you and I basically have no measuring standard, no objective standard whereby we can establish morality, right or wrong, good or bad. You think about it. If there's no God... And there is therefore no objective standard of right and wrong. You tell me this evening on what basis you would argue that what Adolf Hitler did to the Jews, six million of them was wrong. You say, well, the Jews didn't like it. Hitler thought he was exterminating an inferior race. Well, he was wrong. How do you know he was wrong? Well, I just feel, no, 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 no. I just feel like arguments are stupid arguments. They are useless arguments. They carry no weight. And the fact of the matter is, it then comes down to whoever's got the biggest guns makes the rules. Uh, I uh, used to love to watch the old Tarzan movies. And I especially like the one where Tarzan beats up on a bunch of Nazis. And in the end... Uh, Tarzan, as the Nazi falls into a pit and gets eaten by a lion, he throws back at the Nazi a statement that the Nazi had made earlier, and he changed it just a bit, and Tarzan said, in the jungle, the strong always wins. Well, guess what? He's right. In the jungle, is there right and wrong? No. Is there good and bad? No. There's just survival of the fittest, and uh, The strong always wins. Well, if there is no God, then basically all we are is a little bit more sophisticated jungle. And in the end, the strong wins. And anything is permissible. If you've got the will to power, to quote Nietzsche, the great German atheist who bought into this whole idea and saw what would happen eventually in Germany with the coming of Hitler's Nazism, then whoever has the power makes the rules. Or flip it on its head. If I'm a God, you're a God, we're all gods, then does not God, by the very definition of the word, make the rules? Except the problem is, I make the rules for me. You make the rules for you. You make the rules for you. And then when the conflicting of rules comes into play, well, once more, we're back to in the jungle, the strong always wins. And you know, I'm not sure I want to live in a world like that because that means the weak and the disenfranchised and the impoverished and those less fortunate wind up getting laid aside. This week, and just again to put this all in perspective, watching my time here, uh, Newsweek ran as its cover story. Uh, when do we decide, I'm paraphrasing, but, but I'll get the gist of it. When do we decide to pull the plug on Grandma? Go look it up. As I'm getting older, I actually became, well, I didn't really care about that question when I was in my 20s. Now that I'm in my 50s, David, I kind of find that question more entertaining and, for some reason, more interesting. Of course, Grandma means Charlotte. They didn't ask about Grandpa, but I suspect if they're going to ask Grandma, they'll go after Grandpa too. And so, when do we pull the plug on Grandma? And basically, the argument was, and they did this all this sophisticated argument that, in terms of Medicare, for example, something like 25 to 35 percent of Medicare is spent on patients in the last 6 to 18 months of their life. Think about that. 30%, 40% maybe of Medicare, I think it was 35, is spent on patients in the last 18 months of their lives. In other words, we're basically keeping alive for a little longer people whose quality of life really doesn't justify their being kept alive. And so the argument Comes in that we ought to be giving some um, uh, control, some decision making power to somebody, and maybe the somebody's not grandma. Maybe the somebody is even what uh, those that are really opposed to this have called death councils. That, that might be a bit, uh, you know, stacking the deck, but uh, basically you bring it before a board of professionals uh, who are qualified to make those decisions. And the bottom line is, of course, the almighty what? Dollar. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm not sure I want to be in that kind of a world. In fact, actually, I do know I don't want to be in that kind of a world where someone is making those kind of God-like Decisions that only God really should be making. That's why, again, we believe, we should believe, you should believe, not in a quality of life ethic, but a sanctity of life ethic. And that we believe all life is valuable from conception to natural death. And why do we believe that? Because we believe human beings are made in what? The image of a God that really is there and really does exist. And so this kind of issue tonight, talking about the doctrine of God, does he exist, what he is like, it's not merely theologically theoretical. Uh, it's very real to where you and I live in this day and in this time. So let me conclude. Ultimately, in a Dostoevsky kind of a world, or in a world where everybody is God, there are no rules. No norms, no standard by which we can consistently measure truth from error, right from wrong. Uh, we do not live in a world where people believe nothing. Tragically, we find ourselves drowning in a world that believes everything. But top of page four, and we conclude. Genesis one teaches us that in the beginning, God. Thus, Southern Baptists speak with one voice in giving affirmation to this proposition as well as all others in Holy Scripture that reveal to us real and to cite Francis Schaeffer true truth about the God who has created us in His image, redeemed us through His Son, and made us spiritually alive by His Spirit. Or to quote a simple phrase from a wonderful hymn that most of us know, God in three persons. Blessed Trinity. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that your word does reveal to us that you are there and it tells us what you are like. And we thank you so much that as the one true and living God, you are also Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary.